and welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics, and technology from a global south perspective. My name is Sanjana Hattatwa and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. was a situation where the live stream had been really virally propagated across the internet and it started auto-playing on some people's social media feeds. I was aware that um, school children had been viewing the live stream um, lying on the floor in lockdown in their, in their classrooms in Christchurch wondering what the hell was going on. started talking to people throughout the system about my concerns for what this would mean in terms of not just an infodemic but a, a rise in very very extreme conspiracy theories that would ultimately be connected to or have at their base uh, a white supremacist or yeah. an extremist ideology motivation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brown Bag. I'm speaking with the former chief censor of Aotearoa New Zealand, David Shanks. I've had the distinct pleasure of knowing David for a couple of years and I'm so glad that he's able to join me today and all of you listening in to talk about some of the issues that this podcast series covers. David, a very warm welcome to the program. Kia ora, great to be here. David, you were the only the 12th chief censor in New Zealand. Now, I am familiar with the title as a consequence of professional engagements over, over some years, but it might be a point of curiosity, if not consternation to some of the listeners uh, upon hearing that. Um, and, you know, it, 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 since 1917, there's just been 12 of you. The 13th has just been appointed at the time of recording. But could you could you explain and clarify what the Western world's last chief censor is about? <laughs> yeah, look, happy to. It, it's certainly um, a confronting title for many, um, and in fact, I, I I thought as much coming into the role back in 2017. I thought, well, chief censor, that's that's a that's an interesting and somewhat arresting title. And I, I didn't really appreciate just uh, how potentially confronting it was until I traveled to an international classifiers conference um, in Stockholm in Sweden in, in 2017, um, soon after becoming chief censor. And I would introduce myself to, um, to peers effectively gathered from around the world. And they would I'd introduce myself. Hi, I'm David Shanks from New Zealand. I'm, I'm the chief censor for New Zealand. And, and some of them would almost involuntarily recoil, as I said. That. <laughs> um, and in fact, in, I was presenting at the conference and uh, I, I took the opportunity for a bit of a, a spot survey and introduced myself as chief censor. And I, I said, by the way, Censorship doesn't seem to feature um, in many titles or many organisation titles. And I, I 
wonder who here has censorship as, as a formal title or as part of the title for their organisation. And I think one hand went up. There was, you know, 50, 60 or more people gathered from around the world. One hand went up um, and that was uh, a representative from, from Singapore. And she said, yeah, we've still got censorship in our formal organisation title, but we're getting rid of that uh, in a few months' time. So <laughs> I gathered uh, that it, it had very much gone out of fashion. But, I mean, historically, you, you mentioned that I was, I was the 12th. Um, that's interesting. I'd never actually counted up the, the numbers, but the, the title Chief Censor extends back a long way in, in New Zealand's uh, media regulation and classification history. Um, and it originally um, applied to specific um, types of product, notably film censorship. So there was a film censor and, and then there was a chief censor um, later on. And effectively, what we have here in New Zealand is a fairly interesting situation, um, partly by design, I'd like to think, partly by accident, where the, the chief censor is the chief executive of the classification office. It's an independent crown entity. And yes, we do classify and um, uh, sometimes censor films with extreme violent or, or ex extreme sexual content and, and the like. Um, but uh, the, the mandate is much broader than that. So we occupy a role of classifying commercial content, videos, games, um, films and the like, but also internet content. Um, so uh, material that might be classified as unlawful, um, child sexual abuse material is, is one example, extreme terrorist promotional uh, material is another. Um, anything um, on uh, that is content that can be um, analog or digital uh, comes within the, uh, the the purview of the classification office. So material is typically referred through to the office from law enforcement authorities, um, Department of Internal Affairs, police, customs and the like um, in that category. And that's, as you can imagine, a, an extremely broad category. Mm. We're talking about um, social media posts, digital files that are shared um, on private networks and the like. So the chief censor, interestingly, under the New Zealand system, has a mandate for classifying content that can be digital content and has a call-in power of material that may present a harm to the public of, of anything in that category. So theoretically, the chief censor can call in anything on the internet that, may, uh, that they think may present a harm to the, to the public, which is... Um, a very, very broad power um, and one that uh, really, really needs to be applied carefully and judiciously considering that the office is only about 25 people. So the yeah. impact that you can make on the impact or the, the impact you can make on, on the internet is necessarily limited. Listen, that's, that's fascinating. I must share with listeners that um, the first email I got from David uh, already many moons ago quite literally made me break out into a cold sweat because listeners may be aware of the history of censorship in Sri Lanka, which is my home. And you can just imagine from out of the blue, 
getting an email from the chief censor of New Zealand and what 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 I thought that that might contain and 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 preface. Uh, yeah, so um, I can now laugh about it, but I know David knows this. It it really did send shivers up my spine. So that you know that gives you an idea, David, of what this office um, I, signals I, I, to to those not from this country. That, that's right, and I still remember your response to that initial email, um, Sanj, which was which I found very amusing. But um, I, I could absolutely uh, understand that that context and the impact on you having uh, having received a email out of the blue from the chief censor listen i mean on that point though um i guess you were appointed in 2017 and now the office nominally in a sense goes back to william jolliffe in 1916 but your immediate predecessor held office andrew jack held office from 2011 to 2017 so arbitrarily here david and you know bear with me and play with me if you will um, from 2017, I suppose the, the 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 greatest controversy at the time was when you called in 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, which seems almost quaint in 2022 as, as a challenge for the classification office to deal with. But it, my question is, from 2017 up until the pandemic, say the early, early months of uh, 2020, in, in 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 those three years, I kind of have a, a clue to the answer, but I, I want you to say what 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 was the most consequential thing that occurred that really changed the way um, you look at things and the office looks at things. I'll talk about the period after the pandemic later on. I just wanted to um, yeah, go into look, that that first period first. Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, um, without question. Um, the most significant and impactful uh, matter that we had to grapple with was the the March 15 mosque attacks in Christchurch, the terror attacks. Um, Now, most listeners will recall that those attacks were uh, live streamed um, and that horrendous live stream of that attack um, went viral across the internet and um, was also associated with a document that was um, essentially promoting a white supremacist, you know, uh, a vicious ideology. Um, and so that was a situation where we needed to um, assess that, grapple with that, provide a legal classification of both the live stream and in the, the so-called manifesto that was associated with the attacks. And that was highly, I mean, obviously it was nationally uh, significant and critical in terms of responding to to this horrific event. Um, The other aspect, though, for for me personally and for the office was that this was a very, very unusual um, situation in terms of our role, because I mentioned how usually... Law enforcement will will refer to us material for classification for law enforcement purposes, and that by and large is material that has been that has had very very small distri- distribution has has almost no awareness amongst the wider public, but this was a situation where the live stream had been really virally propagated across the internet. It had started auto-playing on some people's social media feeds. I was aware that 
um, school children had been viewing the live stream um, lying on the floor in lockdown in their in their classrooms in Christchurch, wondering what the hell was going on. So this was something that uh, the public awareness of was um, astronomical. Everyone was aware that this was out there. And in fact, people had been viewing it and sharing it in in horror um, and and trying to understand what had occurred in the immediate aftermath. So part of the challenge there was that, fortunately, we had already been grappling with... um, terrorist promotional videos, um, atrocities, uh, manifestos and the like. So we had a framework to start with. Um, But part of the challenge was really the public communication and engagement about effectively coming to a determination very quickly that this was unlawful under New Zealand law, but also communicating to the public about what that meant and and what that meant primarily was that we had to um, accept and understand that people had seen this, that people did have copies of it, that people had shared it in in the aftermath, not really understanding what this was and what they were doing, but setting the expectations of what needed to happen now. If you did have a copy, get rid of it. Don't share it. If you see it, um, notify authorities about it. Um, And and to some extent, we didn't know how the public would respond to that because this was an unprecedented event. But I'd I'd have to say, um, remarkably um, and um, somewhat reassuringly, people people got it. People got that this was mm. harmful, that that this was unlawful, and um, that it should be treated as such. So, really, really a remarkable confluence of of issues and challenges all coming together in a very short period of time. Would you? Would you? I I wonder. Agree that March. 2019 was in a sense crossing a Rubicon for the office. I mean, I don't know whether you've talked with Mr. Jack, Andrew Jack, your your predecessor, but it it seems to me to be the case that what you dealt with that month, that day, and the day after, and the years after that, um, you know, you yourself mentioned it's unprecedented, you know, um, and, you know, I wonder whether um, the office has dealt with anything remotely akin to approximating or even, uh, you know, adjacent to what you did and what the office had to confront. I, I think there's little doubt that that those events um, was crossing the Rubicon to, uh, in, in, quite a, in quite a real and important way. Um, for the reasons that I've been outlining, but also because for me, I think it was an inflection point that signposted the way to quite a horrific future Mm. um, in terms of the potential weaponization of the internet, in terms of um, potential propagation um, and magnification of of this sort of terror. And... um, 
I would I would say we've in the office um, we never dealt with anything subsequently of that magnitude and that level of uh, kind of proliferation and amplification. But we have subsequently dealt with many terror attacks and live streams or attempted live streams and other manifestos. In fact. Um, horrendously this has become something of a playbook for in particular white white supremacist um uh killers but but also other ideologies it was um it was an example of what could be done to exploit exploit the vulnerabilities and the the inbuilt mechanisms on yep. the internet and social media and and we've seen multiple examples since none with the same degree of um, impact and, and proliferation in the New Zealand context, um, but certainly in other countries and certainly with the same uh, potential for for harm um, and inspiration for others that might be seeking to follow suit here and elsewhere. I, I, would, I would also say I think those events and uh, what I did, what the office did in, in the response phase really brought to a critical point um, the, the realisation that we weren't equipped. Yeah. So we, you know, I, I had already been saying publicly um, before that, uh, before March 2019, that, that the legislation we were operating under was uh, 1993 legislation effectively it was pre-internet you know there, there's d coverage of digital material but the the drafters of the law really had the the only the most embryonic concept of what the internet was and what it was going to become yeah um and really uh, i think everyone could appreciate right this this is serious and we've got aspects, harms, and dimensions to this that we need to think through and anticipate in terms of a framework to respond. Now, that's a segue to my, the second part of that first question, which is, you then had the pandemic. I mean, you, you, you know, it, there was no respite for you. There was no rest for you. You went from one to the other, in a sense. Though, you would think that it had nothing to do with the classification office being biological in nature. Up until the time, I suppose, the WHO had to count, uh, coin a phrase to capture what was online the equivalent, if not worse, of the biological virus, which was the infodemic, as they called it, or some of us like myself called uh, call now information disorders or disinformation and misinformation and the, the, the cornucopia of harms that occur as a consequence. Can you, you know, if if March 2019 was crossing the Rubicon, what what did you confront with, deal with, didn't anticipate, but was, you know, but as an officer and as a, you know, as the chief censor were were forced to, to to deal with and respond to meaningfully in that period up until um, you left your office. Yeah, look, um, it, it was it was all connected in a way, certainly connected in my mind, because the work that I and the office did post-March 2019 was all about understanding the pathology of extremism and understanding the pathways and understanding um, how, in particular, digital media is 
potentially accelerating or enabling um, the, the, the pathways to extremism. And so part of our work in that area, we, we connected with a lot of international uh, experts and organizations to, to triangulate and, and understand this better. Um, and all of that was teaching us about effectively what is often termed the rabbit hole these days in terms of the, 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 the rising kind of levels of extremism that, that people will encounter sometimes by virtue of an innocent Google search or just, you know, clicking on a YouTube video and following the recommendations that are, that, that, that are, that are made from there. And so all of that had us thinking about conspiracy theories and misinformation and their linkages to extremism. So, you know, if you think about it, um, the, the, the manifestos that white supremacists put out are an example of conspiracy theories. You know, there, there's the white replacement theories um, and white supremacist theories that have their origins in conspiracy theories that go right back hundreds of years in terms of anti-Semitic thought and, and the like. And so we had been thinking about that a lot and um, come early 2020 with uh, when the pandemic started ramping up and becoming a matter for concern, I was immediately mobilized about what that might mean in terms of a pandemic situation where people would be in lockdown, people would be anxious, people would be spending more time online. And, and I was um, very much taken by um, some of the early work from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Um, they, they got onto this early in 2020 and looked at uh, misinformation propagators in the UK ecosystem, identifying yeah. the disinformation dozen where 12 individuals were responsible for, for nearly two-thirds of the um, anti-vaccine misinformation in the UK ecosystem. And if you, if you dug further into who those individuals were and their motivations, you uncovered some very serious um, and problematic uh, intentions. So all of that came together for me as, as the pandemic started um, approaching New Zealand. There was a bit of a lag, you know, we, as we saw the wave of the virus cover, cover the globe. And I started talking to people throughout the system about my concerns for what this would mean in terms of not just an infodemic, but a, a rise in very, very extreme conspiracy theories that would ultimately be connected to or have at their base uh, a white supremacist or yeah. an extremist ideology motivation. I, I, I just, from, from the work that we were doing, that, that step seemed almost inevitable to me. And again, I was saying, I was talking to people about my concern that the system was not ready and prepared for that sort of onslaught. Yeah. Now you mentioned that twice, uh, and and I tend to agree with you. I would agree. I would I would submit that I don't think I know of in my limited research and reading any system that is fit for purpose. Um, to be fair, by this country, my own, and all of the jurisdictions that I've been studying for a while now, um, which I guess opens up a lot of questions. But in the main, David. Sadly, also as a consequence of what many have confronted 
Um, during the pandemic uh, here after March 2019, more generally speaking, reading about these challenges globally. My question is, you know, what role or relevance does regulation have anymore? And we've talked about this. So just to give listeners a background, I mean, you know, contest me if you want. Um, I don't see regulation as we've done it in decades past to be fit for purpose, where you have a consultative process, you pass the legislative uh, framework, and then that is then seen as the um, uh, you know, gold standard that will last hopefully for a couple of years till you have to review and revise again. I think that um, the pace of challenges and the complexity of uh, online media landscapes has completely um, you know, made that a bit quaint. Um, but nevertheless, we are talk still talking about regulation. The country is going through a regulatory reform process. Um, I've looked at FVPCA from 1993, and you're right, but to be charitable, social media didn't exist at the time. Um, neither did the web as we know it today. I mean, so it was, you know, not it was a pre-web, you know, uh, time. Uh, certainly, I am, I am, and smartphones didn't exist. So, I mean, you really can't talk about uh, its, applica its application today and, 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 and all of that. But my question again is, you know, listeners would wonder what role and relevance regulation can meaningfully play. And with the long gaze and with the consequential period that you were chief censor, David, would you have an answer uh, to, to that question, really? Not a definitive answer, but maybe the start of an answer. I mean, my, my interest and concern about the, um, the pandemic and the infodemic or information disorder that would be associated with that was very much um, that I could see that this would create an increased number of you know, volume of material that was in our wheelhouse, the, within the, the purview of the, the classification office and within scope for even, even the existing legislative framework. For example, early on in the pandemic, um, you might recall that the planned-demic conspiracy theory uh, uh, came up very, very quickly, and there was connections made to all of this being an engineered virus for the purpose of vaccinating um, the, the global population with nanobots that were going to be secretly um, put in the vaccine. And this was all connected with the 5G network because yep. the 5G network internationally would, would activate the nanobots and everyone would, would um, turn into state-controlled zombies or, or something to that effect. Now, um, my shortly after that um, conspiracy theory uh, being propagated across the internet, um, my office reviewed a Facebook video of individuals filming themselves pouring petrol on and setting a cell phone tower alight. It wasn't a 5G um, cell tower. They're, they're quite small and innocuous towers. It was, a, I think it was a large 5G or even earlier, earlier generation tower. But this, this was people... Um, filming themselves committing a crime, um, which uh, at least technically falls within the, the framework for potential classification. And I could see, you know, there, there, was, there was more uh, of this sort of material that, that may um, come along. So I, I think that the purpose of kind of drawing that connection was 
if if ignored or forgotten about or disregarded, then the mechanics and dynamics of this results in more extreme content and more extreme behavior by extension. Um, and that does absolutely get you into a law enforcement regulatory frame, right? Um, the, the key is though, well, what do you do about that? Because uh, what I would say to people is if, if you're just relying on the regulatory and criminal framework to respond, I'm sorry, you're waiting at the bottom of the cliff because you know that we can see the, the engine room and the dynamics firing up, producing more and more of this material and potentially persuading or inspiring people to, to get into that frame. And if you're just in the response phase, I'm sorry, it, it's just not going to work. Um, so you need to think about further up the pathways in terms of thinking about uh, what are your tools and interventions to stop people or material from going over the cliff. And that, I think, to me, becomes both partially a regulatory challenge, uh, partially an industry responsibility challenge, partially a, a community and public responsibility dynamic. And figuring out the roles and responsibilities and how that works in an integrated way is, is, a, is mm. a critical imperative for us mm. at the moment. But mm. it's very, very interesting to see um, moves um, across the world in response to this, you've got you've got a range of responses happening. You have some, um, what in my view, are very unhelpful responses in some countries where it is all about um, trying to filter and prohibit material, or and or criminalise material, um, according to you know very loose definitions, which. Um, unfortunately, in some countries, just plays into the hands of the, the, the ruling party or, or the or government yeah. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that becomes very much antithetical to what we would consider um, as the principles of freedom of speech and, and how uh, free democracies should operate. But then you've got other more sophisticated approaches um, being generated out of the likes of the EU with the Digital Services Act, which effectively says, look, we have an industry operating here, a digital industry that we know and we have evidence can create harmful material and can be harmful to the public, just like any other industry. Um, rather than uh, criminalizing the end user or the consumer of these products, how do we think about regulating the industry just as we regulate other industries that produce potentially harmful products to make sure that they're applying um, the right baseline standards of care and protection yeah. that might apply in, the, in this landscape? Now, that's, that's challenging, uh, but far from impossible. And I think we are seeing some, some good thinking emerge in that area. Which is a segue into maybe a reflection of what I'm assuming would not have been sent and forwarded on your radar, which is an engagement with social media companies. In a sense, you know, uh, uh, when you started in 2017, through to 
the late stages of your tenure in 2022, when I would imagine that if it, if it wasn't a daily call or, or some sort of a communication, it would have been fairly frequent um, um, and potentially frustrating. But I don't want to preface it with, 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 with an answer that I want you to agree with, but I genuinely do want to know, David, um, if we are, you know, you know, reflecting on your last answer as well, if we are looking at uh, a constellation around um, the gravity that is constructed and generated by social media companies, respectively, um, around the, 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 the users that orbit around various product platform surfaces, um, you know, reflecting on, on, on those years as chief censor, what what strikes you as a late motive for a constant trope, something that was recurrent towards the later part of your tenure that wasn't present when you started? Um, and uh, what are your feelings about that? Yeah, well, uh, look, I think I think you've identified the the progression um, pretty well. When I started in 2017, um, industry engagement for me was talking to. Um, Film distributors was talking to video importers, DVD, DVD importers. distributors. I would imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That, that's still around, and <laughs> um, and and also, you know, I, I I thought I was being quite ambitious and brave, engaging with um, streaming uh, providers <laughs> like Netflix, you know, um, to 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 try and work out sensible well, to build a relationship to start to start with and try and figure out how we could how we could apply a, a, an out of date regulatory system in a way that that kind of made sense and would serve to to protect the public better um so that that was that was industry engagement for me in 2017 by by 2022 um Yes, that that was that was still there, but you're right. Um, I was I was very much um, more you know speak, speaking more frequently with the likes of Meta um, and TikTok and, and Google and Twitter um, than than other industry platforms. So I think that just reflects a, a whole bunch of things that we've been talking about, but also reflects the fact that I think any modern regulator looking to engage with what it means to respond to harmful content, you've got to be talking about the main pipelines and platforms for that content. And you've got to be building relationships because I, look, I don't care what new legislative or regulatory system you put in place, um, it's it's not going to be perfect. It's going to have um, some some practicalities to be worked through, and you're yeah. not going to achieve that without some some sort of relationship and, and connection and understanding with, um, with with these platforms. So, I want to press you on that. How, you know, how has 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 any progress been made? Um, have conversations become just more complicated so you keep conversing without, you know, uh, social sciences call these a wicked problems. I mean, there is no arguably one, one solution or panacea. So uh, have you kept talking? Um, has the frustration <laughs> increased? Uh, do you see, uh, do you have or retain optimism 
um, you know, looking back, what's what do you know what what do you what do you think around those engagements? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm optimistic, and I would say progress has been made, and I would point to um, initiatives like the Christchurch Call as as substantive and real and useful yeah. uh, platforms to to unpack the the. The, the very real challenges and, and technicalities and complexities in this space um, and to build relationships. And there's, but there's some brute facts that, that are, are just undeniable in this space. Um, one is that uh, social media companies and digital companies are companies that are in it to make profit they are there to make money and their decisions will always be shaped by that, that imperative for, for, for what they are as, uh, as profit maximizers for their shareholders. That yep. is what they are. Um, so yes, there will be advantage uh, or, or there will be leverage driven off um, uh, asymmetries of information, um, inherent complexities in the space, you know, that, that, that companies will, will, you know, rely on and, and leverage. Uh, the other brute fact, though, is that um, these companies realise that their stock and trade is their brand and their reputation. So they don't want to be seen as the bad guys. They want to be seen as, as helpful and, and, and supportive. They want to be seen as <laughs> doing the right thing. Um, and so I found that, you know, quite a, a practical basis sometimes to, to move and, and, and get some, some sensible movement and, and solutions in place. But you, you've got a tension here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got a tension in that actually the the... Um, some of the fundamentals of these problems really are very expensive for these companies to address. And some of the solutions, I believe, to some of these issues cut right to the very core of the uh, profit model run by these companies. Because, you know, let's face it, they're in the, they're in the business of profiling users, um, effectively monetizing uh, the data that they hold, and monopolizing attention through whatever means uh, is lawful and available yeah. to them. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's, there's just some fundamental um, tensions and paradoxes in the system that I think everyone just needs to be real about as we navigate towards um, a better and safer internet. You know, as you know, I've, I'm from Sri Lanka, where I've been studying some of this um, as a person of color and from the global south for a while, as you know, David, and as you were talking, I was reflecting on, and you know, this is not a question, this is just a reflection, you know, it occurs to me that given our country's shared histories that what the social media companies have done, at least to my mind, is not too different from the ravages of colonialism, where our markets, we were the product, right? I mean, and I just reflect, you know, you said it was expensive to fix, but whose fault is that? It's not you or I, we didn't create this problem. Uh, and what the global north and the west on both sides of the Atlantic and even Aotearoa and New Zealand are now dealing with, we've confronted, dealt with, had to negotiate and have died as a consequence of for well over a decade. So, you know, it does, it does you know, I am angry, but as you know, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's also a conversation that we need to have. But I do wonder 
where the responsibility and the accountability, if not reparations and remediation will, and if uh, if they ever will occur, you know, that, that framing, uh, I think is an important one, at least from where I come from, you know, from the global I, side. I, I, I think it will occur. I think it will occur, Sanj, because, because people die. Um, you know, again, that's that's a brute fact about what it is that we're talking about. And it's it's becoming the 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 evidence and the understanding about these uh uh these mechanics and how they apply is is growing. You know, yeah. we're people we 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 were kind of in the dark, you could you could argue, you know, and very much you know running without information and data and understanding, and, and that is growing. And that's a key component also of, um, of what we've got to leverage and utilize. Uh, the, the other um, aspect of how these companies, these global digital uh, companies operate is they, they're running trials all the time. They're running experiments all the time. It's very, very, you know, their, their research and analytics capability is is absolutely monumental because it serves their um, profit uh, architecture. Surveillance um, capitalism. That that's capitalism at its finest, and they're just doing what what the system allows them to do. And one of one of the things uh, that it very much allows them to do is run trials in countries like Sri Lanka or. Uh, other other countries to to just you know see see how this um, change in the algorithm operates and you know and I think they're making mistakes and I think some of the implications of some of those mistakes may be that people die or that you know there's there's significant social unrest or there's yeah. impacts on democracy we're seeing all of these uh, warning signs right across the world again poorly understood but we're getting better at at analyzing and understanding and unpicking what's going on here so going back to your question about well is is there a regulatory frame or a solution here and, I, and i've said well um yes partially but it's got to be seen in the context of a broader framework yep. of of response and approach i think part of the the state responsibilities for all states is to understand and and look and you know start to start to foot it with the digital companies in terms of the choices um, and experiments um, and trials that they might be running and 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 not just leave it to the companies to figure out what what went wrong and, and sweep it under the carpet, but but for there to be um, a, a state awareness of this dynamic as well. And that, that also plays back into some of the moves and thinking coming out of the EU and other places to really say, yes, there is a there is an industry responsibility here, but the industry isn't going to take responsibility unless there's some kind of watchdog or someone looking over their shoulder, making sure that they're taking responsibility. So, you know, in, in terms of a penultimate, I suppose, question, linked to Aotearoa New Zealand is this, what I find quite a unique country community context where after the Christchurch Commission's report in particular, and it's stress on social cohesion, David, it kind of speaks to what you articulated as, and correctly, I think, uh, to my mind, um, non-technical 
high touch, community oriented, community led um, approaches and responses to what we've been all talking about. And I and I'm mindful about the fact that, for example, the elephant in the room is Telegram, right? In Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, it's 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 with uh, CCTLDs, the country level, top level domains that currently harbor, and I won't mention it for obvious reasons, but significant harms against the prime minister and other government officials and ordinary QEs and their platform, right? So, you know, if March 2019 was one specific set of issues that you had to deal with in terms of vectors of irrigation and pathways of harm, I suppose it's a cornucopia of, of hatred and harm that you find today. And I wanted to ask you a non-technical question in response to the commission's report as well around what you think are, you know, fit for purpose, you know, um, high touch, Aotearoa specific approaches to uh, all of this that you've dealt with that in a sense, I suppose, complement, don't replace, but are vital to and quite unique uh, in the world around meaningful responses to uh, digital harms. Yeah, uh, look, I think that dimension is key because it comes down to, well, if, if you're going to regulate or if you're going to have some kind of state role and responsibility here, then why? Mm. What for? Who's it for? And I would argue that who it's for is, is for the people who are going to get harmed. And who's, who's going to get harmed the most? Who are the most vulnerable communities? Who's facing the most hatred? Who's, you know? Um, and I don't think you can operate the system unless you've got um, that, that community engagement um, and, and dialogue uh, to inform why you're regulating and who for because otherwise you'll, you'll just create a regulatory system that works for government officials and for the industry. I'm sorry, it's, <laughs> it might be tidy, um, it might be convenient, but it probably won't have the results um, and, and outcomes that you're looking for to make the actual difference out there in the world and to make people's lives better and safer. You're, the only way you're gonna have the insights um, an engagement to, to do that is to have genuinely um, deep and informed engagement with those communities. And I think here in Aotearoa, we've got some unique, I, I agree, I, I think we've got some, um, we're a unique society in many ways, and we've got some unique advantages in driving exactly that kind of dynamic. Um, we're still not great at it, but I think we've got some of the, the um, foundations in place to make that, that work well. And if we can do that, then I think that could be a really important um, model and insight for other places in the world. So, I mean, I promise this is the penultimate question. I, I oftentimes, one glosses over for me at least, what, what is a really interesting part of umbilically connected to the classification office, which is the youth advisory panel. Um, now, I actually don't non honestly know, David, when this came about, um, why? I do think it's quite interesting and important because 2021's report on the work of the advisory panel mentions a national security discussion and dialogue with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And I really found it quite interesting. And I quote, 
the representatives of the youth advisory panel said, we are anxious about online radicalization. The lack of internet regulation allows communities of like-minded people to connect, share, hate, and incite violence. Some of us expect an event like the Christchurch mosque attack to happen again in the future, end quote. So, I mean, that's that's quite worrying, but also extremely insightful. I know from personal experience in our March 21 conference that the panel members were, were extremely intelligent, really tuned into uh, some of the stuff that adults actually, you know, find hard to grapple with. So I just want to place that on record. I don't think that's well appreciated within our Therawa, but certainly across, uh, across the rest of the uh, uh, listeners where they are as well. Could you, could you? Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it, it's interesting what they have to say, and it's very powerful. Um, so the the genesis of the youth advisory panel was a discussion that that um, started up very soon after um, I came on board in 2017, where effectively um, I was saying, look, we, we're doing so much of this age restriction and classification and warnings for for teens you know young people teens um has anyone asked them what they think <laughs> do, do you think it might be useful if we engaged with them to really understand what will help them and and what what they consider the most problematic um and, and from that from that fairly simple uh, you know in hindsight pretty obvious question um, we set up the youth advisory panel, which is 12, you know, a, 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 a shifting uh, membership of, of 12 teenagers who, who we put a lot of work into ensuring that they felt safe, mm. that they knew that they could talk very frankly to us um, and that they would be listened to. Um, and I'm really proud of the work that we did in setting up that panel because they provided us with, with incredible insights um, into, into our assumptions and to what the world was like for them, um, which is actually at times quite a shocking and scary world, um, actually, if, if you allow teenagers the time and space and, and, and security to, to speak frankly about, uh, about, about the world they inhabit. So... Um, we, we got a lot, a tremendous amount of insight from them, and I'm really proud that um, they have engaged with other policy, important policy discussions across a number of fora, just as the one that, that um, you quoted from as an example of. And, and again, you can't, you can't do too much of this. It's, it's just another aspect of just what we were talking about in terms of engaging with communities that are affected. Ask them, talk to them. You know, they will tell you and, and your preconceptions will pretty soon be surfaced and uh, you'll know what's what. And that's that's incredibly powerful. And in this domain, I think, you're, you know, the adults are very often going to learn a couple of products and platforms they didn't, never knew existed. Uh, leave right. aside um, how the information ecologies work for this demographic. Um, I think we get it as fathers from our kids. But I mean, it's quite extraordinary that it was set up and established. And I, and I do hope. Uh, that it continues. David, the last question or set of questions, in a sense, I mean, two intertwined uh, and connected ones, which is, I suppose, a hard one, but I ask it with the luxury of now you having left behind you know, the role. Now, what do you think 
was the greatest opportunity that presented itself during your tenure um, that, you know, if you had a lifetime uh, to be chief censor, you would have pursued more um, and harvested. Um, and correspondingly, and feel free to ignore this if you want to, what was the, what, what was the one missed opportunity um, that you wish you knew more about or could have grasped the nettle of better uh, in order to have done something more meaningful. Um, so interconnected, feel free to focus on one or the other, or both. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, the, the, the big opportunity, of which probably won't surprise anyone listening, um, hearing what we've been talking about, was the opportunity to drive change. Mm. Um, running on 1993, um, regulatory frameworks um, was you know, was almost risable, um, given given how different, how much things had changed. You know, the 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 complexity and the dimensions of what we we're grappling with. So, the opportunity there was to drive change, and uh, I'd say it, it it interconnects with with your question because. I think we we seized an opportunity in terms of driving um, an update to our, our regulation, our legislation in relation to streaming services. So when I started, the likes of content streamed by Netflix or Amazon and, and Neon and the like mm. had no regulatory um, requirements whatsoever. Mm. And partially fueled by the voices and perspectives of our youth advisory panel, our experiences with, you know, the, the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why that you mentioned and other, other, other content, um, we were able to get traction on the, the proposal for change, which was an innovative change allowing streaming platforms to essentially self-classify according to a framework that, that the classification office set. So we created a software tool that systematized our classification approach um, and allowed them, you know, you, the, the volumes of streaming content means that it doesn't make sense for, you know, a, a group of uh, classifiers to, tr to try and review and classify everything ourselves. But we could set up a framework where the outcome was functionally equivalent in terms of putting up warnings and, and age breakpoints and the like that, that New Zealanders could, could rely on and was, was uh, you know, felt the same as what they would see if they were going to go see a film or, yeah. or you know, other, other content. So that was, a, that was a meaningful step. And the, 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 um, the loss, I guess, was that we weren't able to get a hold of that potential framework and that insight, the insights drawn from making that progress to drive that further. Because if you think about that, providing warnings and um, in consumer information effectively that's consistent and fit for purpose um, with the platforms themselves doing it, that's a model that could be extended across, you know, potentially a significantly broader span of, of content and material. And that in turn leads us to that broader regulatory, what's the fix here? How are we thinking about, you know, um, where we get to next? So 
you know, I, I think looking back, yes, that that was progress. Progress is hard fought for and hard won. And but the insights that you get from engaging with that struggle are incredibly valuable and uh, and can be can be used to to drive on to the next step, which is um, really not not a silver bullet. Let's fix everything with with one new uh, piece of regulation or one new policy move. No, it's a process. It's it's continually going to be a process from here on out of engaging with the, the new and fresh challenges and thinking up new um, and effective uh, means of responding to those. Hey, David, uh, thanks so much for sharing those thoughts. Uh, I am and have always been a passing guest in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I know that I have immensely benefited from our uh, conversations, our exchanges, and your deep thought and reflections. I know you agonize over some of these issues and challenges, and I think that the point I wanted to make is that uh, this country um, is significantly lucky to have uh, had an individual of your caliber uh, and your caring in that position for what was a consequential uh, tenure. So uh, thank you uh, for not just joining me, uh, but for what you have done and continue to inspire. Many thanks and thanks for the opportunity to talk again. Always a pleasure.